Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I'm talking to David Grubin, the director of Free Renty, Lanier versus Harvard. One of the documentaries we are highlighting as part of our partnership with this year's Minneapolis-St. Paul International Film Festival, happening May 5th through the 19th. Free Renty had its world premiere at Globe Docs in 2021 in Boston and is screened at the Cleveland International Film Festival, Sebastopol Documentary Film Festival, and numerous other festivals. David Grubin is the winner of multiple Alfred DuPont and Peabody Awards, as well as Writers Guild Awards and 10 Emmys. He has directed numerous biographies for the PBS series American Experience, including films about Abraham and Mary Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt, and FDR. He is also a recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship. For those of you able to attend the film festival in Minneapolis, screenings will take place Sunday, May 15th at 4 p.m. at the Capri Theater and Wednesday, May 18th at 2 p.m. at the St. Anthony Main Theater. And David will be there. Or if you're not able to make it there in person, the film will be screening virtually at the festival and will be available from May 6th to May 19th. Note that this virtual screening is available to everyone throughout the United States. And now my conversation with the director of Free Renty, Lanier versus Harvard, David Grubin. David Grubin, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you. Glad to be here. Can you give us a brief log line of the film? Sure. Free Renty, Lanier versus Harvard, it tells the story of Tammy Lanier, who's bringing a lawsuit against Harvard to force them to relinquish the daguerreotypes of her great, great, great grandfather, who was an enslaved man named Renty. The daguerreotypes were commissioned by a Harvard biologist to prove his racist theory that Africans are an inferior species. The film chronicles that lawsuit and all the issues that it raises. David, why do you make documentary films? It's a good question I've asked myself a lot. First, it was a calling, something that when I saw the film Primary, which was an early cinema verite film that Ricky Leacock made with Penny Baker and Robert Drew, I right away felt, wow, this is really exciting. And I wanted to be out in the world. I wanted to see the world through documentary. It started that way. And I think what kept me there was, I don't know, I'm a liberal arts student. It's like a continuing education. It's really been a privilege to be able to make different kinds of films, to do different things, and to be constantly learning and searching and trying to make sense of a very complicated world that we find ourselves in. Documentary allows me to do that. And in a funny way, I'm also, I got a degree in education at one point. And in a way, it's, I'm educating, I guess. I'm a teacher of myself first. And I figure if I'm interested in it, I can get somebody else interested. Definitely. And I think the film you've made that we're talking about today does all those things. How did you first meet Tammy Lanier and learn about the photographs that were taken of Papa Renti and Delia? To make a film like this, you need access. And that's true from so many documentaries today. Here I am going in and filming with her legal team. How am I going to get that trust? You have to earn the trust once you're there. But how are you brought in? Turns out that my cousin is Michael Koskov, who is the lawyer in the film. And he's the man who dies in the process of the film. We were filming for a week and then he called me and he said, I've got cancer. I don't know how long I've got. Pretty rough. And he knew the film was about Tammy and her case. He believed in it. 
He said to me, when he first called me, he said, I have a great case. I think you'd be interested. He told me about the story. I said, this is an incredible story. It's going to raise all kinds of issues. I don't know what they'll be, but I'm ready to go. I took a, a look at the Renty image. And when you look into his eyes, when you look at that picture, you were moved. You, you want to know more about him. And finally, I said to Mike, look, I've seen the image. It's very moving. I know the story is going to raise all kinds of important questions, but I have to meet Tammy and that'll be the decisive thing. And I met Tammy. And of course, she's a, a wonderful woman who's tremendously determined. She's persistent. You know, she's going to stay with it. As soon as I met her, I knew that we had a film and something I could commit myself to because it took three years to make the film. The very first shot of the movie, and also the last, is one of the now famous photos of Renty. This shot then leads into a sequence in which Tammy, Lanier, and numerous other people whom we're going to meet through the course of the film talk about what they see when they look at that picture. Tammy, who is Renty's great-great-great-granddaughter, says, I remember the first time I saw the image, I saw a family resemblance in the eyes, but I also saw a stubborn defiance. All of these people seem to see something different in the picture. One sees a man who went through all kinds of hell, but kept his humanity. Another indignation and steely resolve. Another Ta-Nehisi Coates says he doesn't see Renty so much. He sees a lie and explains what he means. What did you want to accomplish with this opening sequence? It was because I was so moved by the picture that I wanted to know how other people would feel about it. I, I asked a lot of people, and of course, we edited down their responses. I don't think any of the responses are contradictory. I think it's more different people were moved by different aspects of it. I wanted people to get to meet this character, who's in a way the central silent character in the film, other than Tammy. And I wanted to end with him because he is the enslaved man who is unknown. That's what happens when you have a photograph like that. You don't know him. He's stripped of his context. And part of it was to make him a human being again. And that begins that journey of who is this man? What can we see in that picture? That was the key to me, to make him a human being and not a slave, quote unquote. So the lawsuit at the heart of the film is about who owns or who should own these photos. Harvard owns them now. I'm just curious, where did you get these photos to use in the film? Harvard possesses them now. And the question, the legal question is who owns them really? These photos were licensed by Harvard and they made money, profited from them for years. I know because in the year 2000, I made a film about Abraham and Mary Lincoln, a film series about them, and I licensed two of them. Why did I license them? Because like other people, when you want to show slavery, there are not very many pictures that represent enslaved people. And so not knowing anything about Renty, okay, I saw two pictures, I paid $1,700, I got to use them. When I think back on that, I resent the fact that Harvard didn't tell me anything about those photos. They just made them available. I didn't know that those photos were taken by a scientist to prove a racist theory of, of inferiority of African-American. No, I needed a picture. People do that all the time. So they are, were available. At a certain point, and I think it was after Tammy's lawsuit, but I don't know for sure, but I think so. Harvard said, oh, they're in the public domain. They weren't always in the public domain. They put them in the public domain. 
And if you want them, they want to know things like, they're asking me, what distribution do you have for your film? They make it easy. Now, maybe it's easier to get it. You can get that. You can go online and see them. But if you want something that you can use in a film, you want to get a good copy, you can ask them. And if you go through a few hoops, they will give it to you now. So that's how I got this. That's my journey. Thanks, Harvard. Tammy talks about her mother's stories of Papa Renti, but says that her mother never saw the photographs, and Tammy wrestles with whether that's a good thing or not. It's clear that there's a disconnect between the loving family stories passed down through Tammy's mother and the story behind the taking of these photographs. How do you think Tammy resolves that tension between her mother's stories of love and family on the one hand and cruelty and pain of these photographs on the other? Well, in the way she doesn't, she has to embrace them both. And that's the troubling piece of it. I think, what if I had an oral history like that, which I don't, I'm afraid, about my great, great, great grandfather, and I'd heard about him. And then I saw the way he was used. I'd be very upsetting. I mean, you have to think of these as family photos. And as soon as you do, you realize how upsetting it is and why she gets to be so determined. I think she lives with the pain of how he was used at the same time with the loving stories of her mother and knowing him as a person. That's what slavery did to people. It dehumanized them. She won't allow that. And that's really what's pushing her. He's a human being. He's not just a photo. That's why we started with those images in the film and end with it. This is a person. Let's not forget it. How did Tammy learn about the photographs and make the connection between the Papa Renti of her mother's stories and the photos. This is an example of a filmmaker leaving something out of the film. After her mother died, Tammy had made her mother a promise to find out more about him and to see what she could learn. She went to have lunch every day at a local place where she'd stop by and pick up a sandwich. And she's talking to the guy and he says he's interested in genealogy. And this is way before Ancestry.com and all these easy things. Tammy didn't know anything about that. And Tammy said what her problem was. How do I find out about this guy? He said, oh, I'll see what I can find out. This is a local guy who runs the local store. And he came back to her and wasn't too hard to find Red Day on the internet. He's all over the place. She was quite surprised. Now, we interviewed this gentleman. He wasn't that well, and he did come to the interview. And it wasn't so bad, and I had the two of them talking. But, you know, you make a film, and you want this kind of film to be around 90 minutes or a little bit more. And eventually, toward the end, that sequence dropped out. And I regret it because he was very kind to come. He subsequently died, so I couldn't even apologize to him for cutting him out. Let's talk about Louis Agassiz. Who was he? What was he known for? And why did he want these photographs taken? So Agassiz is born in Switzerland. He's a Swiss citizen. And he gets to be known for his studies of glaciation. They say he discovered glaciers. It means he understood what the glaciers were. He got to be very good at classifying particularly fish. He came to America and he gave some lectures and he's very charming, everyone says. He got this position at, at Harvard. And meanwhile, he ends up marrying into a very wealthy and well-connected Cambridge family. His wife eventually becomes the first president of Radcliffe. So he's very connected. He's connected to the intelligentsia there. And he only had one major problem. He was a racist. 
How do we know? Because he wrote his mother about the first time he ever saw African-Americans or one of the early times he saw them in America. And he says some pretty terrible things about them. No one can deny that. What happens in my view of it is his racist biases then infect his theory, his theorizing. And he wants to show that races evolve separately. At the time, there was a theory this is before Darwin and after Darwin, he held on to this, but there's the idea that, well, how do races evolve? How do we get African-Americans? How do we get Native Americans? How do we get Euro, you know, white people? And his theory was they each evolved separately. Oh, they evolved separately. Oh, that explains why the African-Americans or the Africans are inferior because they're at the bottom. They didn't evolve their different intelligence or different species. That's what he wanted to prove. How do you prove that they're different? If you take a picture of them, then you measure their heads and their bodies and you have to get them naked, of course, then you'll be able to prove that they're different. And again, this was a common idea that you could tell that the differences between people by measuring their heads. There was a, a famous guy in Philadelphia that he befriended who had a whole collection of skulls. Oh, that's what he's going to do. He's going to go south and he's going to get some Africans, pure Africans. That's how Renty shows up because Africans are already intermixing, intermarrying in horrible ways with plantation owners. He needed a pure specimen. For him, it was specimens. So he goes down there and he commissions a local photographer to take these daguerreotypes, a guy named Zeely. And Zeely takes them and Agassiz is going to use them to prove his theory that Africans are inferior, the bottom of the racial hierarchy. So let's pick up the story where Agassiz and Harvard overlap. Harvard's relationship to these photos goes back to 1850 when Agassiz, who was a Harvard professor at the time, arranged to have these photos taken, brought back to Harvard. And it seems that they were stored sometime after that, basically forgotten until 1976 when an archivist at the Peabody Museum discovered them in the attic. She then published a paper about the photos that was picked up by newspapers across the country. And the papers basically said these could possibly be the earliest photos taken of African slaves in America. From 1976 till now, long period of time, how would you describe Harvard's relationship to these photos? Other than vigorously protecting their ownership rights, what do we know about their purpose in holding on to these photos? Well, they say that they're holding on to them because they are an important part of the historical record and that they are going to be the steward of these photos. Of course, at the same time, they are telling them to people, they're licensing them, and they're not doing anything to really find out about these people. And I think that's in keeping with Harvard's old attitude toward their ties to slavery. I don't think they want this to be known. And as somebody in the film says, the the husband of the woman who discovered the, uh, the daguerreotypes. Here's Louis Agassiz. He's an important guy for Harvard. His name is on buildings. His wife is the first president of Radcliffe. They don't want it out there that their main guy, this important Harvard professor, is a racist. And so they're keeping a lid on a lot of things, particularly this racist past. Tammy was in contact with Harvard for a number of years. There's an exchange of letters that's described in the film, and they pretty much put her off. What made Tammy finally make the decision to go ahead with the lawsuit? I think she just got fed up. I think she's a determined woman, and she wasn't going to stand for it. 
and she didn't know what to do. So what do you do? You're not in the legal community. You don't know who to go to. Ben Crump is a name that people would know. And so she just went up to him, just out of the blue, and proposed this story to him. Said, could you represent me? Told him the story. And to his credit, he said, yeah, it isn't an easy one. I'm not sure I will do it, but let's do it. Fascinating turn of events occurs when Tammy connects with Marion Moore and Susanna Moore and their family, who are the descendants of Louis Agassiz. They form a bond and the Moores become fully supportive of Tammy's position about the photographs. They write this letter to Harvard. This to me was one of the most moving parts of the film. To see these descendants of slaves and descendants of those who perpetrated acts of white supremacy coming together like this is really quite moving. Can you talk about how you first encountered the Moors and how their story became a part of the film? Tammy told me that she was going to have this conversation. And I said, Tammy, this is going to be amazing. And she said, we'll put you in touch with Marion Moore. Marion Moore, by the way, lives in Minneapolis. And she will be at the festival. I'm going to make sure she gets to speak about this. Fantastic. It's a very moving part of the film for me. So I called Marion. She didn't know me, but it turned out we had a few mutual friends. That kind of happens. And she said, all right, I have to get permission for my family, for you to be on the Skype call. And, you know, when you're starting out, people, why should they trust you? The way people are taking advantage of every day in the media. And so she was asking the right questions and she said, okay, we'll give it a try. I didn't know what was going to happen. I just set up a way to record the Skype. It was amazing. And then I arranged for interviews and was able to elaborate on who they were and, and what their commitments were. A theme of the movie is clearly family, the bonds of family and the legacies that people leave to their families and their descendants. We see that in many cases. We see that with the Lanier's through Tammy's relationship with her daughters, with Michael Koskoff, who we just learned is your cousin. So there's another family connection. Michael was the lead Connecticut attorney on the case who sadly died before the case could be heard. And his son, Josh, is in the film who carries on his father's legacy by taking over the case. And of course, with the Moors, who we just talked about. Did you realize all along that family and these intergenerational dialogues were going to spread out so widely in the film and become such a strong thread throughout. I have to admit that I didn't, that what happens when you make a film is that you're working with it, you have feelings about it, and at a certain point that surfaces for you. I mean, at some point you realize it. I'm so glad you saw that because not everybody would think about family because there are other more topical themes which are pressing. But underneath it, when you're making a film, you need a human story. And what's more human than family? The, the rest of it, the topical stuff, is what makes it relevant to us. But the thing that really touches us is the families. And underneath it all, it's how much Tammy's family mattered to her, uh, That how much it mattered to Josh to carry on the lawsuit. These things are moving. The fact that the Agassiz descendants wanted to make up for what their ancestor had done, that they feel connected to that guy in a negative way. That's, I think, where the human part of the story is. I didn't know it while I was making it. Honestly, it's afterwards so you begin to see those links. It's even wider than that, I think, because there's this sort of non-biological family that forms with those supporting Tammy and her lawsuit, all the lawyers in the law firm, the student activists at Harvard. They're all part of Tammy's family by the end. Yes, yes. 
I, I really have a lot of feeling for that. And I'm glad that you see that. Well, most people, they, they go to the topical material, which is, of course, cutting edge and very important. It's interesting to see the evolving approach to the legal strategy that the law firms decide to take on Tammy's side. Initially, Michael Koskoff is seen saying, let's be sure not to use the R word, as he calls it, meaning reparations. And civil rights attorney Benjamin Crump basically agrees with him. Later, after Michael dies, we see an evolution in strategy and a more open approach to this idea of embracing reparations and how they present the case. To what do you attribute the shift if such a shift did occur? Well, yeah, absolutely. It did occur. And in the beginning, they are afraid they represent their client. They don't want to ruin their case. Of course, Ta-Nehisi Coates doesn't agree with them. And we make sure that his voice is heard saying, I think it's more important that you say what we're fighting for. But at that stage, reparations was not something that was in the mainstream. And by the time that this film was made over three years, and the consciousness is shifting so quickly during that period, we had an amazing thing for documentary. We were there when they changed their mind. I mean, they didn't change their mind until they were in the hotel room watching Ta-Nehisi Coates testifying about reparations that they realized, wait a minute, we're going to say reparations. We're not going to we're not going to hide. So we were right there. I remember feeling afterwards, God, we've seen them change their mind and they're, they're telling us. I think they were able to change their mind because they felt like the dialogue and the conversation about reparations had shifted enough. With Tallahassee coach testifying in Congress before a congressional committee, people were trying to figure out reparations. And it was amazing to see that shift and how it could happen so quickly. In the hearing, the attorney for Harvard disputes any property claims that Tammy has over the photographs as a lineal descendant of Renty. He says, according to the legal rule, there is no dispute that the subjects of a photograph have never been understood to have a property interest, including when photos have been taken by coercion. The rule is that a photograph is the property of the photographer, not the subject of the image. Later, at the end of the film, when the judge's ruling comes down, he dismisses the lawsuit, saying simply, it's a basic tenet of common law that the subject of a photograph has no interest in the negative or any photographs printed from the negative. So evidently, the judge sided with Harvard's basic argument, and none of Tammy's lawyer's arguments seem to have made much of a dent in his thinking about how the law should be applied in this case. My question is, based on what you know, is the law really as unequivocal about this as the judge says? And if so, what are the implications of that for this case and beyond? Well, Harvard obviously thought that this was settled law. The president of Harvard said, the law is on our side, which of course doesn't go over well with students nor with anybody else because Harvard's a, an educational institution it's supposed to be concerned about ethics and students get on to that right away. But they had told him the law is on our side. That's what he said. And he thought it was settled law. Tammy's lawyers said to me afterwards that they anticipated that they wouldn't win the case at this level because at this level, the judge can't overturn what seems to be the law. It has to go to the next level. The Massachusetts Supreme Court is the next level. That's where our film ends. She's going to appeal it. Well, they've presented their case now. And if you go to our website, you'll see excerpts 
from the Harvard lawyer presenting his case again. And you'll see Tammy's lawyers, Josh Koskoff and Ben Crump, presenting Tammy's case. They haven't put down their verdict yet. But what is remarkable is that the judges, and this is all of the judges, they're all reported by a Republican governor. All of them are asking the same kinds of questions. And the Harvard lawyer is stunned because he doesn't have an answer when they say, what if a rapist takes a picture of his victim? Does he own the photograph? What about child pornographers? Do they own the photograph? It's obvious that this isn't settled law. It isn't so simple. Harvard doesn't have a claim that so simply answered, well, they took the picture. Agassiz commissioned the picture, and so it's Harvard's. It's fascinating to see this, and you can look at our website and see that. Those questions would make you think that the, the judges may overturn the decision of the trial level of the earlier judge. But we don't know, and it's been almost four months now. Now, maybe more. So I don't know why they haven't ruled, what's going on in their minds. Maybe they're very busy, but the questions would make you think that it's not so simple. It's not settled law. Why should it be? Why should a, the photographer, a child pornographer, own those pictures? Absolutely. And I will check out those arguments on your website. I would urge others to do so as well at freerentifilm.com. As a documentary filmmaker yourself, someone who takes moving pictures of subjects all the time. How do you feel about this rule and the images you take? You know, it's a very good question. And of course, Louis Agassiz didn't get a release from the enslaved people. He may own the photographs, but to use them publicly, you need a release. I can't take a picture of anybody and use it without a release. So that's the legal answer to the question. The ethical answer is, do you entrap people in some way? Do you, you know, make a film using people in some way where you think you can get away with it? And I don't know, I would feel uncomfortable doing that. I'm, I'm sorry, but I would be. One of the things in the film that we made sure to raise, one of the questions is, what about Agatha? had the enslaved people take off their clothes. That's the only way to do the measurements. One of the horrible things. And he stripped Renty's daughter right in front of him, and Renty also was stripped. So here you go. But we're showing those images, and that's a question. And so we made sure to ask one of the scholars who thinks deeply about these things, and one of the most moving moments in the film is when she describes what was it like for the father to be there when his daughter was stripped in front of him. And then she says, do we use these images? What do we do with them? Should we show them? Should we not show them? And there is a debate about it. And she feels that they should be shown that we need to have encounters with these images because what you see is that Agassiz took them to show that these people are inferior, they're not people. But what you see are human beings. And I would agree with that. And we do use the, the pictures. This is a very lively debate in the community, the photographic community, of how you collaborate with the people you're taking pictures of. Filmmakers are always collaborated with their subject. And then, honestly, you can't make the film unless you're, you're not a fly on the wall. You're there. And people know you're there. And you have a relationship with them. And you have certain obligations to them. Josh Koskoff in the hearing says, the question that everybody asks about this case is one Harvard won't answer, which is, why don't they just give them back? Harvard didn't address that question in the hearing. And we know from the title card at the end of the film that Harvard declined to participate in your film, citing pending litigation. I'm going to ask you to speculate, why don't they just give back the photographs? 
Yeah, exactly. Well, in the film, there's two people that give what I think is the reason. It's simple. There are 30 million objects, documents, images that Harvard holds in its museum. And you know that these aren't the only ones that are questionable, that have been stolen in some way, plundered in some way. So this would set a precedent. It opens up the door for people to come looking for other objects. And I think they don't want to open that door because in a way, it just doesn't make sense. They could have compromised this thing. They could have found a way to do this, particularly in the beginning. Tammy now, I think, is just fed up. But all she wanted in the beginning was to talk to them, try to understand how they were using them, you know, make sure his story was out there. By now, she's just saying, I want control of these. They're, they're, they're my family heirlooms. They're icons of my family, is the way she puts it. But I think that they're afraid that it'll open the door. Why else wouldn't they? I'm just curious. There's the one scene where Tammy's lawyers go to the Times Square offices of Harvard's lawyers and they, quote unquote, negotiate behind closed doors. But it seems like Harvard didn't budge a bit. What do you know about what they said in that meeting, if anything, of any substance? There weren't any substantive compromises. They made offers that really were not. They weren't offers that Tammy could accept. She actually felt insulted by the offers. These are her family. We have to find a way that she should be making the decision about what to do with them. So, no, they negotiated. And as I say, there was nothing really offered. Harvard, you know, they wouldn't talk to me. And no comment is a kind of a comment. I mean, there's no reason why they couldn't talk to me. They say it's during litigation. But I was trying to talk to their professors, to the president, to the past president, and they really shut it down. And there's something about those pictures that get them really anxious. And as I said, I think they're afraid to open the door to giving anything back. If Tammy did get the photographs back, what does she say she will do with them? She says she wants to be able to decide. That's the thing. She could have decided, leave them with Harvard in some way. But at this point, I think they'll, they would go to the African-American Museum at the Smithsonian in Washington. There's a new museum that's going up in South Carolina. There's the Legacy Museum, the one in Birmingham. There are a lot of wonderful stewards that would be very glad to present them in the way they should be. Let's talk about how relevant all of this is to today. And by today, I mean today. <laughs> Just this week, Harvard released a report called Harvard and the Legacy of Slavery. Louis Agassiz is all over this report. You can do a search of his name and he pops up all over the place. The photographs of Renty and Delia and the others are also discussed in the report. A bunch of recommendations are made for what Harvard might do going forward to reckon with its past and make some kind of amends. Interestingly, if you do a search, you'll see that the word reparations barely appears. It's only mentioned in the index. And there's no mention of Tammy Lanier and her claims on the photographs, no mention of the lawsuit, nothing. What do you make of this report and its relationship to the issues raised by your film and what the people in your film say so eloquently about Harvard's role and what should be done? Well, I really do think it's a step in the right direction. They are surfacing this material. They are so late in doing it. It tells you something about Harvard. 2003, Brown, that's 20 years ago, set forth to do their report. In 2007, one of the authors of this report started teaching a class about Harvard's ties to slavery and the legacy. Nothing ever came of it. They end up putting a little plaque on campus about an, an enslaved person or two that were there. They didn't confront the fact that Harvard presidents 
had slaves. They didn't confront the fact of Louis Agassiz and the racist science, not that just he taught, but that the people he taught. It's great that they're doing it now, but it's so Harvard to be doing it so late. President Bacow says that he found it shocking when he read the report. It made me think of Casablanca and uh, Claude Rains say, I'm shocked, I'm shocked, come on. At the one hand, they are, for the first time, really unearthing this, but they don't want to acknowledge Tammy Lanier in this at all. You know, in the film, Tanasi Coates talks about a wealth transfer. The fact that Harvard's endowment now is $53 billion, I think at the time of the film, was $41 billion. And Tanasi Coates points out that there's $800 million at Howard. That's their endowment. You could do more than to say we're going to have some educational courses together. You feel like they are uncovering material they should have uncovered a long time ago, but it's not clear at all what they're really going to do. And if they did say, you know, I see we really should be giving these daguerreotypes to Tammy Lanier, they're not doing anything yet. They're just talking. So let's see what they do. It's such a baby step, but I'm glad it's a step after years and years of pushing this stuff down. This story is one of intergenerational pride and also intergenerational trauma. As you were making this film over the course of the three years, how would you say Tammy and her family experienced healing when it comes to this? I think this quest of theirs, it gives them a kind of meaning and the healing comes in the quest and the journey in the determination. And as she says, at this point, win or lose, her great, great, great grandfather is no longer just a slave. He's a human being. His story is getting told. And I think there, the healing lies there for her. Of course, she'd like to win the, the lawsuit. Of course, it'll be sad if she's not. But this film gets the story out. The healing is in that, telling the story. What is Papa Renti's legacy? How does he speak to us, to present day society and to future generations? When I look at that picture, I see the a man who is not going to be dehumanizing. He is angry. You could see it. And I think it tells you something about the individual voice, the voice that can speak up that you can model yourself after that. It's so easy to get lost in our culture and mass entertainment and mass selling of goods and everything. And here's a guy who was a slave. who's saying, no, you're taking my picture. I can't do anything about it, but I am angry. So I, I feel it's a human model. It's a human being who's teaching us something. And Tammy does too, of course, by her determination to stick with this story. That's a David and Goliath story. And she's going up against the wealthiest, the oldest, probably the most prestigious university. Look, they have wonderful professors. I'm not knocking any of that. But the corporation, the Harvard Corporation, is what she's really fighting. And it shows you, you could stand up. It's really something to model ourselves after. They're not easy. It isn't easy, but she's doing it. And so was her great, great, great grandfather. Well, David, I want to thank you so much for making this film. It's one that's full of courage and warmth. There's so much to learn from in the film. I want to thank you for being with us today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Do you have a hidden gem, a film that you've seen that you don't think gets the attention it deserves? Honestly, this year, a film that was an eye-opener for me was listening to Kenny G. I didn't know who Kenny G was. And it was amazed me, first of all, to discover that 
millions and millions of people do know who he is. It's made by Penny Lane. And what I really enjoyed about it is that those kind of films are either films that are hagiographies, celebrity toasts, or they take the person down. Kenny G would have been easy to take down. It's not that. It's called listening to Kenny G. And it's about this music and what it means that so many people like it, so many critics don't like it. He appears in it. It's very comfortable to see him in it. I thought it was beautifully uh, rendered. It was authentic about, okay, here's this guy. We're not gonna put him down. We're not gonna put him on a pedestal. Here's the story.